Hello everyone, I'm Kathleen Pelly. Welcome to the special omnibus edition of Journey with Story, where you can listen to all of this month's episodes one after the other. And just so you know, there will be no special intro for the individual stories, no added details and no shout-outs. If you want to hear all of those, then you'll need to listen to the individual episodes and not this version. Got it? Oh, mums, dads, grown-ups, you can download some free colouring sheets at our website, www.journeywithstory.com. Let's take an omnibus journey with story. Now, let's take a journey with How Brother Rabbit Fooled the Whale and the Elephant by Sarah Cohn Bryant. One day, little Brother Rabbit was running along on the sand, lippity-lippity, when he saw the whale and the elephant talking together. Little Brother Rabbit crouched down and listened to what they were saying. You're the biggest thing on the land, Brother Elephant, said the whale, and I am the biggest thing in the sea. If we join together, we can rule all the animals in the world and have our way about everything. Ah, very good, very good, trumpeted the elephant. That suits me. We will do it. Little Brother Rabbit snickered to himself. They won't rule me, he said. He ran away and got a very long, very strong rope. And he got his big drum and he hid the drum a long way off in the bushes. Then he went along the beach till he came to the whale. Oh, please, dear strong Mr. Whale, he said. Will you have the great kindness to do me a favour? My cow is stuck in the mud a quarter of a mile from here, and I can't pull her out. But you are so strong and so obliging that I venture to trust you'll help me out. The whale was so pleased with the compliment that he agreed at once. So, said the rabbit, I will tie this end of my long rope to you, and I will run away and tie the other end round my cow. And when I am ready, I will beat my big drum. When you hear that, pull very, very hard, for the cow is stuck very deep in the mud. Ha! grunted the whale. I'll pull her out if she's stuck to the horns. Little Brother Rabbit tied the rope end to the whale and ran off lippity-lippity till he came to the place where the elephant was. Oh, please, mighty and kindly elephant, he said, making a very low bow. Will you do me a favour? What is it? asked the elephant. My cow is stuck in the mud about a quarter of a mile from here, said Little Brother Rabbit, and I cannot pull her out. Of course you could, if you will be so very obliging as to help me. Oh, certainly, said the elephant grandly, certainly. So, 
said the little brother rabbit. I will tie one end of this long rope to your trunk and the other to my cow. And as soon as I have tied her tightly, I will beat my big drum. When you hear that, pull. Pull as hard as you can, for my cow is very heavy. Oh, never fear, said the elephant. I could pull twenty cows. Oh, I'm sure you could, said the rabbit politely. Only be sure to begin gently and pull harder and harder until you get her. Then he tied the end of the rope tightly round the elephant's trunk and he ran away into the bushes. There he sat down and beat the big drum. The whale began to pull and the elephant began to pull and in a jiffy the rope tightened till it was stretched as hard as it could be. This is a remarkably heavy cow, said the elephant, but I'll fetch her. And he braced his forefeet in the earth and gave a tremendous pull. Fear me, said the whale. That cow must be stuck mighty tight. And he drove his tail deep in the water and gave a marvellous pull. He pulled harder, the elephant pulled harder. Pretty soon the whale found himself sliding toward the land. The reason was, of course, that the elephant had something solid to brace against. And also, as fast as he drew the rope in a little, he took a turn with it round his trunk. But when the whale found himself sliding toward the land, he was so provoked with the cow that he dove head first down to the bottom of the sea. That was a pull. The elephant was jerked off his feet and came slipping and sliding to the beach and into the surf. He was terribly angry. He braced himself with all his might and pulled his best. At the jerk, up came the whale out of the water. Who is pulling me? spouted the whale. Who is pulling me? trumpeted the elephant. And then each saw the rope in the other's hold. How is this? cried the whale. I thought I was pulling Brother Rabbit's cow. That is what I thought, said the elephant. Brother Rabbit is making fun of us. He must pay for this. I forbid him to eat a blade of grass on land because he played a trick on us. And I will not allow him to drink a drop of water in the sea, said the whale. But Little Rabbit sat in the bushes and laughed and laughed and laughed. Ha <laughs> ha, much do I care, he said. I can get all the green things I want. And I don't like salt water.
Now, let's take a journey with the magic cap. There was once a poor countryman whose neighbours claimed had no more wits than he was born with, and that was not many. He was indeed a simple-minded fellow, and anybody could get the better of him. One day, the countryman's wife said to him, Jan, put on your best smock and your soundest clogs, and go to the market to try and sell our calf. She is a good calf, and you ought to get at least a hundred francs for her. Away went Jan along the road to the market town with the calf behind him. He felt quite glad to be out on this fine spring day, and he hummed a merry tune as he plodded along. Three students who were lounging at the door of an inn saw him pass, and noticing his air of simplicity, thought it would be good fun to play a joke upon him. So one of them went up to him and said, Good morning, friend. How much are you asking for your goat? Goat? answered the peasant in surprise. This is not a goat. A calf. It's a calf. Oh, indeed, said the student politely. And who told you that? It was my wife, answered the peasant. Jan, she said, go to the market and try to sell our calf. I'm sure she said calf. I could not make a mistake about such a thing. Your wife was playing a joke on you, said the student. Anybody can see that this is a goat. If you don't believe me, ask the next person you meet on the road. And he went off laughing. Jan continued his walk, a little troubled in his mind, and before very long he saw the second of the students coming toward him. Hey, stay a minute, sir, he cried. Do you mind looking at this animal of mine and telling me what sort of a creature it is? Why, it's a goat, of course, answered the student. You're wrong, said the peasant. It's a calf. My wife says so, and she could not be mistaken. Have it your own way, replied the student. But if you take my advice, you won't pretend that animal is a calf when you get to the market, unless you want to be laughed out of the town. Ah, said Jan, and he went on his way, muttering to himself and casting many a troubled glance at the innocent calf who ambled along peacefully behind him. If it is a goat... It ought to have horns, he said to himself, and it hasn't got any horns. But if it is a calf, hmm, it will have horns when it grows to be a cow. Hmm, perhaps it is a goat calf. I wonder whether goat calves have horns. And he continued to puzzle his poor brains about the matter until he was suddenly interrupted by a shout. On the side of the road. The shout came from the third student who had been waiting for him. Hello, you there, cried the student. How much do you want for your goat? 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 murmured the peasant in dismay. Here, take the thing. If it's a goat, I don't want it. But I was sent to market to sell a calf. You may have it for nothing. I'll make you a present of it. 
and so saying he pushed the cord into the student's hand. Then turning his back without another word, he retraced his steps towards his home. When his wife heard what had happened, she was furious. You stupid lout, she cried. Could you not see that you were being made a fool of? And she called them all the names she could lay her tongue to until the poor fellow blushed and hung his head for shame. Her anger did not last long, however, for she was a good woman and she knew that her husband's simplicity was not his fault, but his misfortune. Fortunately, she had quite enough wits for them both, and instead of wasting more time in reproaches, she set to work to think how she might pay back the practical jokers and give them a taste of their own medicine. It did not take her long to think of a plan, and as the first step towards carrying it out, she put on her bonnet and went off to the town, where she called at three inns, paying at each of them for a dinner for four persons, the dinner to be eaten on the next market day. Returning home, she explained the plan to her husband and gave him very exact instructions as to the part he was to play. When the next market day came round, Jan set off for the town and by the door of the very first inn on the road he met the three students. They exchanged a sly smile when they saw him and one of them said... Good morning, good fellow, and how do you find yourself today? I notice that you have no goat with you this time. Ha ha ha, laughed Jan. That was a good joke you played on me, but I bear you no ill will for it. Come in and have a hearty breakfast on me. I'm in funds this morning, and I'll willingly stand a treat. The student accepted Jan's offer with enthusiasm, for they belonged to that class of men who were always willing to accept a free meal. Accordingly, the four went into the tavern, and Jan ordered a fine breakfast to be served. When the time came to pay for it, he called the serving maid, and taking off his cap, spun it round three times on his finger. Madam, said he, everything is paid for, isn't it? Yes, sir, and thank you very much, answered the serving maid. The three students watched this procedure with a good deal of surprise, but Jan carried off the whole affair as if it were the most natural thing in the world. Now, my friends, said he, what do you say to a fine glass of ale to wash down our breakfast? Oh, as many as you please, answered the students joyfully. Very well, then come along with me to the next inn and you shall have one. Laughing in their sleeves at the peasant's simplicity, the students followed. After they arrived at the inn, Jan ordered the best of ales to be served for everyone. And after they had all had their fill, he called the serving maid to him, took off his cap as before, and twirled around three times on his finger. Now then, said he, everything is paid for. Isn't that so? Certainly, sir answered the serving maid, and I am very much obliged to you. At this, the three students opened their eyes even wider than before, but Jan took not the slightest notice of their astonishment. What do you say, friends? he asked. Shall we go on into town together now and have some dinner? 
Excellent, cried the students, and they followed Jan to the town where he entered a third tavern and ordered dinner for four, and a heap of good things were put upon the table. After they had finished, Jan called to the innkeeper. Then, taking off his cap once again, he twirled it round three times on his finger and said, Everything is paid for, isn't it, my good man? Certainly, sir, said the innkeeper, bowing. But this was more than the curiosity of the students could stand. Look here, gossip, said one of them. How is it that you are able to get food and drink for nothing everywhere you go, simply by twirling your cap in people's faces? Oh, that's easily explained, answered Jan. This cap of mine is a magic cap, which was left to me by my great-great-grandmother, who was a witch. So I have her say. If I twirl it on my finger and say, everything is paid for, well, everything is paid for. You understand me? Perfectly, said the student. My faith, but that is a wonderful cap. The very thing to have when one goes on a journey. Will you sell it to me? Well, how much will you give me for it? asked Jan. Two hundred francs. Nonsense. Do you think I'm going to brave my wife's anger for a paltry two hundred francs? Well, then, three hundred. Not enough. My wife says it is worth a fortune. Four hundred. Jan shook his head doubtfully, and seeing his hesitation, the student cried, Come on now, we'll give you five hundred, and not a penny more. You'd better accept, or you'll lose your chance. Well then, hand over the money. I don't know what my wife will say, but she'll give you a kiss for making such a splendid bargain, cried the student pushing a bag of coins into Jan's hand and snatching the magic cap. Hurry off home as fast as you can to tell her the good news. Then the three went away laughing, slapping each other on the back in their joy at having got the better of the simple peasant. That evening, the students, eager to take advantage of the qualities of the magic cap, invited about 50 of their friends to a splendid feast at the largest inn in the town. Everybody who was invited came, as you may imagine, and the resources of the innkeeper were taxed to the utmost to supply the hungry and thirsty crowd with all that they wanted. When the feast was ended, the student who had Jan's cap called the host and, twirling it three times round his finger, said, Now, sir, everything is paid for, isn't it? Paid for? cried the innkeeper. What do you mean? I've not seen the colour of your money yet. At this reply, the student's face fell. But one of his companions snatched the cap from his hands. Idiot, said he, you twirled the cap the wrong way. I was watching the peasant carefully, and he twisted it like this. So saying, he gave the cap a twirl and said, Now then, my good sir, I think you will agree that everything is paid for. I don't know whether you are trying to play a joke on me, answered the innkeeper grimly, but your idea of humour is not mine. You had better pay up at once before I call the police. Here, let me try, cried the third, and in his turn he twirled the cap and, fixing the host with his eye, repeated that everything was paid for. At this, the innkeeper, 
innkeeper flew into a passion and made such a fuss that the room was in an uproar. It was only by promising to pay him at once that the innkeeper could be quietened down and prevented from putting his threat of calling the police into execution. The banquet cost a good round sum of money, and as the three students had no money left, their invited guests were obliged to foot the bill, which they did with much grumbling. Afterwards, they took their three hosts outside and dipped them into the horse trough to punish them for their bad taste in playing practical jokes on their friends. And a few miles away in their little cottage, Jan and his wife sat counting the five hundred francs he had been given for his greasy old cap, which indeed had not been left him by his great-great-grandmother, but which was as old and ragged as though it had... Now, let's take a journey with the Fairy Gold. Not far from Cape Cornwall and the sea is a small hill, or a very large mound would perhaps be the truer description, called the Gump where the little people used to hold their merrymaking and where our grandfathers and grandmothers used to be allowed to stand and look on and listen. In those good old times, fairies and ordinary people were all good friends together and it is because they were all such friends and trusted one another that our grandfathers and grandmothers were able to tell their grandchildren so many tales about fairies and pixies and goblins and all the rest of the little people. In those days people believed in the fairies and so in return the fairies often helped the people and did them all sorts of kindnesses. Indeed they would do so nowadays if folks had not grown so learned and disbelieving. All this new knowledge has led folks to doubt that fairies exist because now they have neither the eyes nor the minds to see them. And of course, no one could expect these sensitive little creatures to appear if people sneer and scoff at them. All the same, they are all around us, as close to us as they ever were. And if you or I, who actually do believe in the little people, were to go to the gump on the right nights at the right hour, We should see them feasting and dancing and holding their revels just as of old. If, though, you do go, you must be very careful to keep at a distance and not to trespass on their fairy ground, for that is a great offence and woe be to you if you offend them. There was, once upon a time, a grasping mean old fellow who did just that. He trespassed on the fairy ground, 
and pretty well he was punished for his daring. It is his story I am going to tell you, but I will not tell you his name, for that would be unpleasant for his descendants. Well, this old man used to listen to the tales the people told of the fairies and their riches and their wonderful treasures, until he could scarcely bear to hear any more. He longed so to have some of those riches for himself, and at last his greed grew so great, he said to himself, he must and would have some, or he should die of frustration. So one night, when the harvest moon was at the full, he started off alone and very stealthily to walk to the gump, for he did not want his neighbours to know anything at all about his plans. He was very nervous, for it is a very desolate spot. But his greed was greater than his fear, and he made himself go forward, though he longed all the time to turn tail and hurry home to the safe shelter of his house and his bed. As he drew near, he heard delightful music, which seemed to come from inside the hillock. The notes were now slow and solemn and now quick and gay, so the old man had to weep and laugh in one breath. Then, before he knew it, he began to dance to the fairy measure. He was forced by some unseen power to whirl round and round. But in spite of this, he kept his wits about him and watched to see what would happen. Suddenly, there was a crashing sound and a door in the hillock opened. Instantly, the old man saw that everything about him was ablaze with coloured lights. Each blade of grass was hung with tiny bright lamps, and every tree and bush was illuminated with stars. Out of the opening in the hillock marched a band of goblins, as if to clear the way. Then, came a number of fairy musicians playing on every kind of musical instrument. These were followed by troop after troop of elfin soldiers carrying waving banners. The soldiers arranged themselves in two files on either side of the door, but the goblins, much to the old man's disgust, placed themselves close behind him. As they were no bigger than his thumb, he thought to himself, if they bother me, I can easily step on them and crush them with my foot. Next, from the hillock, came a crowd of elfin servants carrying pictures of silver and gold and goblets cut out of diamonds, rubies, emeralds and other precious stones. Servants followed, bearing aloft gold and silver platters heaped high with the richest meats, pastries, candies and glowing fruits. A number of elfin boys, clad in crimson, then set out small tables made of ivory, curiously carved, and the servants arranged the feast with order. Then, out of the hillock, came crowding thousands and thousands of lovely winged fairies, clad in gossamer robes of every colour like the rainbow. Troop after troop they came, 
more than I can describe or you could remember. Only, I must tell you, that the last of all were the most lovely. The ladies, all of whom had dark hair, were clad in white velvet, lined with the palest violet silk, while round the hems of the skirts and on the bodices were bands of soft white swans down. Swans down also edged the little violet cloaks which hung from their shoulders. I cannot describe to you how beautiful they looked with their rosy smiling faces and long black curls. On their heads they wore little silver crowns set with amethysts. Amethysts too sparkled on their necks and over their gowns. In their hands they carried long rails of the lovely blossom of the wisteria. Their companions were clad in white and green, and in their left hands they carried silver rods with emerald stars at the top. Then the music suddenly changed to low, delicate notes, and the old man found that he was no longer forced to dance and whirl about, and as he stood still, the perfume of a thousand rich flowers filled the air, and the whole vast host of fairies began to sing a song as clear and sweet as the tinkle of silver bells. Then from the hillock issued forth line after line of elfin boys dressed in green and gold, and behind them on an ivory throne borne aloft by a hundred fairies came the king and queen of fairyland, blazing with beauty and jewels. The throne was placed upon the hillock, which immediately bloomed with lilies and roses. Before the king and queen was set the most beautiful of all the little tables, laden with gold and silver dishes and precious goblets. The fairies took their places at the other tables and began to feast with a will. Now, thought the old man, my time is come. If only I can creep up without being seen to the fairy king's table, I shall be able to snatch enough gold to make me rich for life. And with his greedy mind set on this, he crouched down and began very slowly to creep toward the throne. But he did not see that thousands of goblins had cast fine threads about his body and were holding the ends in their hands. Then, bringing up his hat as a boy does to catch a butterfly, he was just going to bring it down on the silken platform and capture the king and queen's table, gold dishes and all, when hark! A shrill whistle sounded. The old man's hand with a hat in it was paralysed on the air so that he could not move it backwards or forwards and in an instant... Every light went out, and all was pitchy darkness. There were a whirr and a buzz and a whirr, as if a swarm of bees were flying by him, and the old man felt himself fastened so securely to the ground do what he would, he could not move an inch, and all the time he felt himself being pinched and pricked and tweaked from top to toe, so that not an inch of him was free from torment. He was lying on his back at the foot of the gump, though how he got there he could never tell. 
His arms were stretched out and fastened down so that he could not do anything to drive off his tormentors. His legs were so secured that he could not even relieve himself by kicking and his tongue was tied with cords so that he could not call out. There he lay, no one knows how long, for to him it seemed hours, and no one else but the fairies knew anything about it. At last he felt a lot of little feet running over him. But whose they were, he had no idea until something perched on his nose. And by the light of the moon, he saw it was a goblin. His wicked old heart sank when he realised that he had got into their clutches for all his life he had heard what wicked little creatures they were. The little imp on his nose kicked and danced and stamped about in great delight at finding himself perched up so high. We all know how painful it is to have one's nose knocked even ever so little, so you may imagine that the old miser did not enjoy himself at all. The goblin did, though. He roared with laughter. (laughs) As though he were having a huge joke, until at last, rising suddenly to his feet and standing on the tips of his tiny toes, he shouted sharply, Away, away, I smell the day! And to the old man's great relief, off he flew in a great hurry followed by all his mischievous companions who had been playing games and running races all over their victim's body. Left at last himself, the mortified old man lay for some time, thinking over all that had happened, trying to collect his senses and wondering how he should manage to escape from his bonds, for he might lie there for a week without any human being coming near the place. Till sunrise he lay there, trying to think of some plan, and then, what do you think he saw? Why, that he had not been tied down by ropes at all, but only by thousands of gossamer webs. And there they were now, all over him with the dew on them, sparkling like the diamonds that the fairies had worn the night before. And those dewdrop diamonds were all the jewels he got for his night's work. When he made this discovery, he turned over and groaned and wept with rage and shame. And never to his dying day could he bear to look at sparkling gold or gems, for the mere sight of them made him feel quite ill. At last, afraid lest he should be missed, and searches be sent out to look for him, he got up, brushed off the dewy webs, and putting on his battered old hat, crept slowly home. He was wet through with dew, cold and full of rheumatism, and very ashamed of himself, and very good care he took to keep that night's experience to himself. He did not want anyone to know his shame. Some years later, though, when he had become a changed man and repented of his former greediness, he told his story bit by bit, to be a lesson to others, until his friends and neighbours, 
who loved to listen to anything about fairies, had gathered it all as I have told it to you here. And you may be quite sure it is all true. For the old man was not clever enough to invent it. Now, let's take a journey with Whoopity Story. Oh, there might be a few Scottish words here that you're not familiar with, but you should be able to guess the meaning pretty easily, I think. Long, long ago, in a cottage high on a hill, lived a poor widow who was called the old wife of Kittle Rumpet and her daughter, Kirsty. They lived a simple life with just enough wood to put fire in the hearth and just enough milk and bread to have a meagre supper of an evening. But they did own a handsome pig by the name of Truffles, who was ready to have piglets any day now. But one morning, when Kirsty went out to fill Truffles' trough, she found the poor beast on its back, groaning and moaning with its trotters up in the air. Mum! Mum! cried Kirsty. Come quick! Poor Truffles is in a bad way! The old wife and Kirsty knelt down and tried to make the poor beast more comfortable, offering her tiny sips of water and stroking her behind her ears just the way she liked. But it was no use. Truffles grew weaker and weaker with every passing minute. Her breaths became slow and laboured, and poor Kirsty and her mum feared for the worst. Together they sat on the knocking stone outside the cottage and wept for their poor Truffles, but also for themselves, for those piglets would have given them some much-needed extra money to put more food on the table and wood on the fire. Suddenly, they noticed someone coming down the road. A strange-looking body with the shape of a woman with the walk of a laddie. As she got closer, the old wife noticed her clothes. She was wearing a green velvet dress with a bonny crisp white apron and on her head a big tall bonnet made of beaver. She was holding a big staff too, which really was odd. To the old wife of Kittle Rumpet's surprise, this strange woman walked right up to her and said, Now don't you bother telling me what's wrong because I ken all about it. I ken all about you being a widow and I ken all about how your pig's not well. So what if I told you that I could fix that pig? Could you really fix my pig? said the old wife. Oh, if you could, that would be just wonderful, because at the moment I feel like the most unfortunate soul on earth. Very well, I can make your pig better, 
But what will you give me in return? said the strange woman. Oh, I'll give you anything at all, said the wife, bowing low to the ground in a deep curtsy and ready to kiss the hem of her gown. No, 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 screeched the woman. None of your kissing and curtsying. Let's just wet thumbs in the bargain. And so Kirsty's mother and this green lady licked thumbs and pressed them together. Then the green lady demanded, Now let me see your pig. She stepped into the pigsty, looked in her bag and took out a wee bottle which contained a black liquid and shook three drops into the pig's ears and snout. No sooner had she finished than the pig jumped up onto its wee trotter straight away and trotted off to the trough where she began to gobble up her food as if nothing at all had ever been amiss. Oh, thank you ever so much, said the old wife of Kittle Rumpet. Now what can I give you in return for curing our darling truffles? Food? Drink? Clothes? Ah, oh, no thank you, said the woman. You will not find me greedy, all I ask. All I demand is... Your wee lassie. My lassie? cried the old wife. Oh, you cannot take her. But you said I could have anything I liked. Oh, but not my wee bairnie, wailed the old wife. And she began to weep and wail, wringing her hands in despair. For now she knew she had struck a bargain with a fairy. A deal is a deal, a promise is a promise, said the green fairy. You promise me anything, so I shall take your wee bairn. The old wife of Kittle Rumpet could barely believe her ears. What kind of a person takes a bairn away from his mother? How could she save her wee lassie? And she started to wail and weep and howl with grief and sorrow. Your wailing won't help you, said the green fairy. But I can tell you by fairy law, I cannot take your daughter until three days from now. And even then I cannot take her if you manage to guess my name correctly in three tries. But you will never guess it. With that, off she whirled with her big staff and disappeared down the hill. The old wife of Kittle Rumpet didn't know what to do. She sat down and tried to think, but all she could do was weep. And so she wept and wept for two days and two nights until her tears ran dry. And then, on the third morning, she had an idea. She rifled through cupboards and drawers until she found a big book of names that she began to read page after page. Oh, maybe Elsa is the green fairy's name, she wondered. Or Vary, or Poppy, or Prunella. She kept turning page after page, and so absorbed was she in her task that she never noticed truffles stealing out of her sty and running down the hill. But Kirsty did. Truffles, she cried. Come back, come back. But Truffles paid no heed. Through the forest she ran, across a stream she swam, and finally into an old quarry hole she clambered, with Kirsty close on her trail. 
Then Kirsty heard the whirring of a wheel, and there before her was a strange green woman with a staff. It was the cunning fairy who had visited them, for sure. She was sitting there, spinning on a huge spinning wheel, and as she spun, she chanted, Little does her old wifey of Kittle Rumpet Ken, that whoopity story is my name. Little does her old wifey of Kittle Rumpet Ken, that whoopity story is my name. Kirsty pressed her finger to her lips as she stroked Truffle's snout, whispering, Come on now, Truffles, let's go tell Mum the green fairy's name. Kirsty and Truffles carefully made their way out of the quarry, over the stream and into the forest, but suddenly a huge green dust cloud swirled by them. It was the green fairy who whirled by them all the way to the top of the hill, where the old wife was still sitting on the knocking stone, reading her book of names. Good woman of Kittle Rumpet, she cried. It is time to hand over your burden to me. A bargain is a bargain. Oh, could I not have a guess at your name first, said the wife. I suppose so, but you'll never guess it, said the fairy. Is it Willow-Wisp Woman? asked the old wife. <laughs> no, it's not, laughed the fairy. You'll never guess it. Is it Tittle-Tattle-Tottle? Not even close, said the fairy. And that's two tries you'd use, only one left. Just as the poor wife opened her mouth to give another wild guess, Kirsty came bounding up the hill. Mum! Mum! She panted. Don't you know? This green lady is none other than Whoopity Sturdy. The fairy turned as white as a sheet, leapt into the air and screeched with fury as off she whirled down the hill in a green plume of rage. Kirsty and her mum did a jig of joy. But where is Truffles? asked the old wife, looking around. She must still be trying to follow me home, said Kirsty, and off they went in search of her. They found her at the very bottom of the hill, but she was not alone. There were three baby pigs squealing at her side. Kirsty and her mum did another jig of joy, and then they sat down to decide what name to give Truffles three wee babies. And when they decided on Snouter, Squealer and Stubble, off they went to tell their neighbours the story of Whoopity Story, just as I have told you here. I hope you enjoyed all of our stories for this month. 
And if you subscribe to our Patreon page, you can enjoy even more perks and resources. Here's to stories aplenty that fill our hearts with grace and goodness, hope and light, so that we remember, as my favourite poet says, All shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Be well, my friends, be well, and join me next time for Journey with Story. Music and post-production was by Colette Jonas.